Hello and welcome to Take 97, a film podcast with your host, David Ingram. Uh, Today's episode, I'm going to be talking to you all about one of my favourite elements or aspects, areas, whichever we want to call it, of film called film noir. Now, if you don't know what film noir is, I'll just jump straight in with a definition. Uh, Essentially, film noir was a term coined by a group of French film critics back in uh, the 1950s, 1960s, and it was literally, in some respects, you can translate it as black film or dark films, and usually that's because all these films, which I shall talk to you about a few today, are shot in black and white, and the way they're shot and their cinematography is crafted, it's done in such a way, you know, it's very, there's dark lighting, it's very moody, and all these films within a certain cycle of American Hollywood cinema, they're all made with a certain sense of style, panache, darkness, and really creepiness in some respects, but it's very, I just love it, I, you know, they're, at their heart, the vast majority of them are detective stories. Uh, the detective element of it isn't always crucial, but nine times out of ten, these films tend to follow that rule of thumb with a detective as or private eye from the police force or whichever you want to choose from their main catalogue of characters. And the other character types you get, there's two types of female character. There's a nice girl, sort of girl next door, who assists our main character. And doesn't really contribute much to the plot which is annoying in some respects because you feel like why are they even there but then you think hmm kind of they are there just to move the plot along but then obviously you do lead into the question of why were they even used in the first place but that's another discussion for another time um but for now just that's one of the characters obviously private eye detective uh simple sort of bridging the gap uh, female character or even sometimes a male character as well um, usually they're one of the people or elements in the story where they ask the detective for help and it, it, you know it's either to acquire a certain object acquire information um, assist them in discovering something that they're not too sure of themselves uh, and then in doing so along the way our main character our protagonist our detective usually meets a femme fatale now femme fatale for those of you who don't know is you quite a flirtatious sexually driven woman and you know she usually latches onto our hero or heroes uh, quite quickly from the start and usually the femme fatale is tied up with the bigger picture of the film of so if there's not a villain as such or a baddie but the person that's behind the crimes or the mystery that our detective is looking into the ultimate you know, expectation is that the femme fatale nine times out of ten will be in league with that person that's really bluffing the detective and making the detective go down the wrong areas of inquiry and just really confusing them. Um, other things to note, typical visual iconography and content. These films largely are set in Los Angeles, not always exclusively, but nine times out of ten they are. Other times they've been known to set be set in other con- uh, parts of the country, like cities. So um, I know there are plenty of film noirs which are set in, like, there's San Francisco, there's New York. Um, some are even on the road between cities, and that, you know, brings a whole new meaning to the film of somewhere dark and corrupt and uh, an area of darkness where you're a bit uncertain of the world around you, but I'll get into that later. 
largely the other thing as well is that these films you they were classed as film noir typically films in a cycle from 1941 up to 1958 give or take um but these films particularly are very driven by their dark shadowy lighting and uh probably a better way to put it but we'll stick with that dark and shadowy and very murky and in Los Angeles or a, some sort of city where you think, oh, it looks perfect on the outside, but really down below there's a element of corruption and darkness uh, within any of the characters, even the detective sometimes, who's usually a very cynical person. You get that in the typical Humphrey Bogart um, character type, so the characters that Humphrey Bogart would play in this sort of era of Hollywood, not just film noir, but the classic era of Hollywood in general, very cynical. So you think about Casablanca. Now, that's not a film noir, even though it is in black and white. It's got some lovely dark cinematography in places. It's not a film noir because it doesn't follow that particular uh, pattern then. Uh, but Humphrey Bogart is in one of what is considered one of the first film noirs, and that is The Maltese Falcon. Um, essentially, it just searched the film... It searches for the title, The Maltese Falcon, a MacGuffin object um, that is meant to be of some value and worth to various characters and groups of characters. Um, but it's the fact that it's got a man wearing a fedora and it is a private eye. Uh, he's a bit angry and just against the world, really, and very cynical, like I said before. Um, but that's one of the ones that initially started it. But that's not going to be what... I recommend that one highly, but it's, it, it's kind of slow because it's one of the earlier ones and it's not... If you're into more fast-paced action, I wouldn't watch The Maltese Falcon if you don't want to feel, you know... I know there are lots of films that have slow moments in them and, you know, things unfold slowly, but it is quite a slow film in general, uh, in my opinion. But one of my personal favourites, which I've learned to love over the years, is the film Double Indemnity, which is directed by Billy Wilder. It stars Fred McMurray as the business uh sorry the insurance salesman walter neff and then uh he plays opposite the wonderful barbara stanwick who plays phyllis dietrichson uh a wife of just a not housewife uh character now obviously like i just said detective films usually this doesn't have a detective in it as i just said it's got an insurance salesman um this is one of the earliest exam early examples of film noir which doesn't really adhere to the whole detective style thing but in terms of its stylistic tropes and the use of the femme fatale in the form of phyllis dietrichson it very much is a noir she's very much typical of that femme fatale character uh you know she's very enticing she entices our hero into what she wants to do so in that respect she's quite a strong woman and you know she does have the upper hand at many moments during the film even though she profanes that she's actually quite worried on the inside about what's going to happen, about being found out. So the long short of it is Walter Neff, an insurance salesman in Los Angeles, he comes to, he goes door to door visiting various people to try and sell them insurance, like you do. And then he gets to the door of Phyllis Dietrichson uh, and he gets let in by the maid and we get introduced to her in the most, how should I put it, the most classical Hollywood way in the respect that we we don't see her face first we see her ankles and then when we do see her face she's dressed in nothing but a beach towel um so be that what you will read into that what you will and the way the camera work is 
constructed. You know, obviously she's she's positioned above. So although we don't see her face first, face first, she's positioned above Walter, and it's quite nice how throughout the film you get this essence of they slowly they come together and they're more on each other's level. But then as we get towards the end of the film, the levels do change every now and again, and you get that sense that they're entwined together as a pairing, but there's always going to be one that's going to get the upper hand, and there's they always sort of shift between each other throughout the film. Something, obviously, is down to personal opinion, but I would recommend watching it just for the character play between Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray. Brilliant performances. Um, so anyway, he sell, tries to sell her insurance, and eventually it leads to her convincing him or him convincing her, open to interpretation, that they want to kill her husband and claim on the insurance money. And they take like a a sort of a split from each of it, 50-50 as it were, or 60-40, I believe, whichever one they agreed on. And it's all a whole, and they do, you know, we see how they undertake the murder of the husband. And it really, you think, oh, this is too obvious, this is too simple, but it's it's kind of a cat and mouse game, really, because the moment that Fred McMurray's um, character, so um, Minute Walter Neff's boss, who's played by the brilliant Edward G. Robinson, uh, he he kind of suspects some sort of very strange goings on with this particular insurance claim. He thinks there's no, there's more to it, and so he investigates it and he starts getting detectives involved. He starts making his own inquiries. Um, not too much detective action, but he starts making his own inquiries off his own back, as it were. And he really, really delves into how this could be dodgy. It could not be. And, you know, we follow <laughs> Key, uh, the character is called Keys. And Keys has a has a lovely saying where he goes, oh, I feel it in my gut. You know, he has a gut feeling, a gut instinct, which he says that is always right. And in this case, he feels something's wrong and something is wrong. We know it. The audience know it. They know it. Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray, they know it. But Edward G. Robinson doesn't. Uh, You know, Keyes doesn't know. And it's, you know, throughout the whole film, it's framed by this voiceover. And we keep cutting back to um, Walter Neff, who has been shown to us right at the beginning of the film as a... uh, He's retelling his story. So this whole film that we're watching, he's retelling... This is his internal monologue, so to speak, of what actually happened. And it's just brilliantly played. It's cat and mouse fun at its best in terms of, are we going to get found out? Are we not going to get found out? It's brilliant. And I highly recommend that. And in terms of, I just mentioned the voiceover, I'll move on to another film, another recommendation of mine. It's a beautiful film. I've never I've never heard of it before until just last year, so 2019. Uh, it's a film directed by Edgar G. Ulmer, and it's called Detour. And it begins in the sim- in a similar way to Double Indemnity, because Double Indemnity opens with what would be the ending scene. So we see our main character, and he's a bit down on his luck, and he's a bit, you know, we don't know what's going on. So classical Hollywood way, it leads the voiceover in all these films, because voiceovers are quite common in a lot of film noirs. They take you by the hand and they lead you through the story. And that is exactly, that's what Double Indemnity does. And also Detour. Uh, Detour is a brilliant film. In ter- it's essentially a road movie. It you, it depicts a character. He's played by Tom Neal. Uh, is a nightclub pianist. Uh, he's mo- he's traveling across America from New York to Los Angeles, and obviously he's hitchhiking all the way. 
and to meet his girlfriend, I, I believe it is his girlfriend. Um, but on the way, he picks up a character. She's played by Anne Savage. Um, she's very cunning and very, uh, I, I don't know, very, very tricky, shall we say, then. Um, the character of Vera. And he is a uh, character, Al. He's picked, uh, picked up by one man at one point in his journey. And he dies unsuspectingly in the car as he's driving the man's car and although we know he hasn't killed the man and he's not responsible because it's quite clear that's not spoiler that's just a fact he hasn't killed the man um, but he just dies this rich man or man from a illustrious family that he's just stumbled upon on his trips uh, across america he thinks the police would think oh you naturally killed this man because you're in the car together there's no one else here how did he die there's got to be a, no other explanation except for the fact that you, so Tom Neal's character, has killed this other man. Which isn't true, but obviously he panics. So he goes on about his way and takes the car, hides the body. And it's when he meets this Vera that Vera recognises this character, uh, recognises the fact that because initially Tom Neal tries to pass himself off as the man that he picked up before. And it's just, you know... It's very much an, another case of, oh, I don't want to be found out. But then when someone finds out, it's all about how they make this little agreement between them. And Vera is very much, in term, she's a very much a typical B picture femme fatale. So an A picture, in my opinion, an A picture, so a more prestige picture, femme fatale, is someone like Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity, um, or even um, the character of Laura in the film Laura from 1944. Again, highly recommend that one. Who's I don't they're, they're very much a part of the film, and you know they they come in and out of the narrative. Whereas I feel with you know obviously Barbara Stanwyck is in Double Indemnity a little bit more than say uh, some of the femme fatales who come in at certain key points then during a a film noir such as the ones in the Maltese Falcon like the femme fatale in the Maltese Falcon I'm gonna be honest with you I can't remember her that much she's in it but she's not in it massively I my eyes are more drawn to the action going on with the actual Falcon itself but you know that's my own personal opinion but in terms of Detour the character of Vera although she's not in it for the first 20 minutes or so she remains in the film as soon as she comes in and enters and meets Tom Neal's character and really just shows she's a force to be reckoned with. And that's, again, it's a cat and mouse game, but it's, oh, who's going to tell on who? Because, you know, the guy's stolen the car that's not his, but the girl, on the other hand, she's not being entirely honest because she's, you know, her morals are slightly unscrupulous in terms of her motivations. She doesn't... We're never really sure what she wants. She's a hitchhiker, and it seems like she's a regular hitchhiker with this same man who is now dead. But it's a case of, I'll keep my mouth shut if you do. And then they start going into partnership together, and it kind of becomes more of a domestic drama than anything, than a film noir. But it's lit like a film noir. So you've got the dark shadows at night in the hotel rooms, and the very corrupt attitude not in case of a law enforcement corruption but in terms of the character development they're very corrupt of each other they're you know 
they're like it's like on an honor between thieves that kind of thing and i genuinely feel that as a b picture it stands out as a brilliant film and recently criterion collection have done a 4k restoration of it if you can get your hands on it highly recommend it it's a brilliant film um same goes for another film which i've got in front of me here is the robert aldrich film which is an adaptation of the pulp fiction novels uh written by mickey spillane uh, and with the character mike hammer and he's played by ralph meeker uh, who plays and now the character of Mike Hammer has been played and interpreted by many many actors over the years, but in this one this version nineteen fifty five this film was released, uh, the film Kiss Me Deadly, and it's it's very much more driven by its context than anything else because the others are very are, are a detective mystery or tension based, and you know the ambiance of the darkness of film noir and the corruption leads it i highly recommend those ones but this one is something different as it's from the later period of film noir it's from the late 1950s towards the end very much like so touch of evil by orson wells is a late late example but it still does the classic film noir thing where it's like detectives you know and border force corruption all that kind of thing um with various various um interesting tropes in that one but kiss me deadly really does break the mold Kiss Me Deadly is a lovely film that, in my opinion, it's got so many great characters in it. Um, and it's, you know, he's got a, I think he's, I want to say he's Mexican, I want to say. So whilst the depiction is probably less than desired by today's standards, um, he's such a lovable character. Uh, and he's friend to Mike Hammer, so Ralph Meeks, uh, Mika, Mika's Mike Hammer. And they just have a nice bond. And the minute that, that something happens, that character or, you know, threat comes his way, you really should see a brilliant relationship on screen. Um, but yeah, so to backtrack, Kiss Me Deadly is about this private detective. He ends up being taken out of commission and having to hand in his license uh, for being a private detective over to the police uh, because he's fiddling in pies that don't really belong in his cupboard as it were and the thing with this film is while some of the films are more cat and mouse others are tension built others are classic detective stories where it's like someone murdered someone we must find out this and it's all shot you know in the noir like way all of these films demonstrate a sense of paranoia and the reason why i say this film is different from the rest of them is because kiss me deadly it really accepts the context of the time so whereas classic noirs like, so you've got Detour, Maltese Falcon, Double Indemnity, Laura, all those ones, they really demonstrate a, like a paranoia then, a sense of paranoia and a a sense of awareness for the past, uh, anxiety of the past. So wartime anxiety, most people would say. So obviously some of the films came out during the Second World War, but a lot of them did come out after the war, towards the end of the war. So particularly like 1944 onwards. And there's a lot of post-war anxiety depicted in the way men are depicted and presented on screen and the way that they're, you know, they're just paranoid about the future and, like, the, you know, they're very stuck in their ways. And that's why they're cynical, because they're stuck in their ways in some respects. That's one way of reading it. But obviously they're paranoid about the past and have anxieties about the past. But this film noir, the film Kiss Me Deadly, is very much a representation and presentation of 
the anxieties of the present because it's 1955 it was released and made in the 50s which is obviously at the height of the cold war now and on the front of my criterion blu-ray ironically it does actually say mickey spillane's latest h-bomb now that is obviously in reference to hydrogen bombs and all the context if you want to read history find the history podcast so i won't try and explain that to you too much but essentially the context of this film and the time period that surrounded it have largely affected this film and it's a brilliant way to bring the politics into the story without overdoing it because i i tell you there's nothing that i hate more than overdone political subtext where it no longer becomes subtext and it becomes just text now whilst that's fine if you're doing a political drama but if you're trying to do something where it involves a hidden meaning but it's meant to be obvious but it's just there it's a little bit more distracting for the main plot if all you're talking about is the propaganda or other views that you're trying to express or deal with or debate between this one is quite good because it deals some people even say that kiss me deadly is like a science fiction film in some respects because of the the um, the, the strange object in the which lots of people have said is basically a bomb in a suitcase um, and if you know the film, there's a shot towards the end where our, where the main, one of our main characters, um, opens up the, uh, opens up, I believe, I believe is one of the female characters. She opens up the case with the bomb or whatever this MacGuffin is, which we don't, which we've been sort of seeing passed around from person to person throughout the film. And it gets opened and it produces a bright white light now, or if you're a light of some kind. If you're familiar with Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, now whilst this is an adaptation of a Pulp Fiction novel, Tarantino has done a very clever thing in terms of that's where he got his idea from. Um, he incorporated in Pulp Fiction, you know, the the suitcase which glows gold, the suitcase that Vincent Vega, so John Travolta, opens when it glows really brightly. It's very, you know, that's where this, that's where that come from. That's what that's cemented from all the way back to Kiss Me Deadly. Kiss Me Deadly is the first one, to my knowledge, that has done the whole MacGuffin light inside a box thing, uh, where it really depicts, you know, yes, it's a bomb because of events that happen later in the film. You know, it's explosive, but we don't quite know what it is. That's why people think it's a science fiction film, like science fiction elements are included because of the the otherworldliness and the strange mystery surrounding this box and this glowing light that appears from the box itself but you know it's meant to be representative of you know the impending threat of bombing and you know all the worries and anxieties of potential pain and suffering that could come from the conflict of the cold war and i thought that was very well done mixed in with a detective story with a bit of humor here and there and a guy who loves his cars it, like in a little bit like a James Bond film in some respect, like a precursor, because this is before Bond. It's much... I just love it. It's a brilliant film. Amazing. Amazing. I highly recommend it. Um, moving on to my final pick of today, I've mentioned quite a few films, so Double Indemnity, Kiss Me Deadly, and Detour. Uh, they're all brilliant films, uh, but, and uh, Maltese Falcon, if you fancy it. Um, but there's one more film that I'd like to point out, and it's... It's quite a gem, and I will probably revisit it later in the podcast. And I really feel that 
if you can get hold of it, get hold of it. I'm not sure it's available on many streaming services, as with a lot of these. I know, I think sometimes, I think Criterion might have their own um, streaming service, possibly, but a lot of these, uh, I'm basing these on my own personal library of physical media. And I would personally say, you probably have to might venture online somewhere, maybe Amazon or HMV or um, Hulu, if you're for streaming in the USA, wherever you're listening, see if you can get it online, maybe. Because um, this one's quite a rare one, and I, I only just found it. I didn't think they did a Blu-ray of it, but it's called The Naked City, and it's directed, uh, filmed by Jules Dassin. And it's a point I want to make about film noir. Film noir largely shot all of their stories uh, so all the people who made these films they didn't know they were making film noir at the time but all the people who made these are classic Hollywood um, era of filmmakers but then it was during this period that some directors found it quite interesting to shoot on location a lot more now whilst the interiors were probably all inside in a studio which is quite obvious because some of them are lit in the very classic Hollywood way the majority of films were shot on location for their exterior scenes and this film the naked city uh it's a 1948 film i believe it's a it's a masterpiece of cinema it's very much documentary in the uh, like has a documentary feel to it because it's all shot on location so not in los angeles like a lot of the other films where film noir is set but it's shot in new york city and it actually it's very strange because it has like a voiceover from i believe it's one of the lead producers on the film literally tell the audience and introduce the film as this is a brilliant motion picture that has been filmed entirely on location and this is a day in the life of New York City and you know it's very grand very you know traditional Hollywood producer voiceover but so they use the voiceover which is used in other film noirs usually by a cat the main character which takes you by the hand and leads you into the film whereas this one it's a studio executive saying oh Here's a film. It's really good. It's and you know praises the director. Says that it's a it's a brilliant masterpiece of cinema. I mean, you know, obviously check it out for yourself if you can. I highly recommend it. But essentially, it's got characters in it. But it does. It literally is more like a documentary than anything else. And the it's very cinematic in the way that it uses its locations. It's so real and raw. I I just love it. It's amazing. And if you love New York City, if you've ever been to New York City, or even if you haven't, I know this is an older version of New York City, but it's a brilliant, brilliant depiction of it, uh, of its time. And, it, you know, it shows the sleazy, dark, corrupt underworld of the police and, you know, various, and, you know, the good side to the police as well. A detective taking on a case about a, a murdered girl. It's very interesting in the sense that, Again, it provides the audience with so much information and then the characters are all there working it all out. Now, whilst we don't know everything, the characters within the film are working it out kind of along the same time as us, but we do have some foreknowledge about some events. So we actually see a dead body being put into a river. Uh, we see a girl, uh, a young a young woman, I think me a bit being being murdered I think at the beginning and she goes missing she's been tied up and she goes missing and it's the hunt for her as well as various other leads and sources in the whole tangled web of mystery and lies that we go through um and I just want to read from the back of my the back of my copy of the blu-ray 
um, my own personal copy, it says, and it's from the opening monologue, there are eight million stories in the naked city. This is one of them. And I just find that, I I just love that. That is amazing. To to me, that is a brilliant opening. Like, it's not the full opening line, because the rest of it's quite commercial in some respects. But that line, there are eight million stories in the naked city. This is one of them. I just, it really sends chills down my spine. And the way it's all shot, it's beautifully photographed on film. Really revolutionary for its time, actually. And it shoots on locate, like, up... I believe it's on the Brooklyn bit, the Queensboro Bridge or the Brooklyn Bridge at one point, and there's a brilliant climactic scene, and lots of shots from above, beautiful, beautiful vistas. You see lots of bit, uh, moments of the, you know, you get to see the skyline of New York City as it was in the 1940s. That, to me, is something I find very interesting. And that's probably something I will go into detail more in another episode, um, which I, I'm very keen to talk to uh, get somebody a friend of mine in to talk about film locations specific you know specific films that are based in real locations and this one I might revisit more because I just love it I highly recommend it so that's The Naked City 1948 Jules Dassin if you haven't seen it I'd watch it now it's brilliant uh, obviously you've got Maltese Falcon Double Indemnity Detour Kiss Me Deadly they're all brilliant films uh, Laura as well that's another good one great paranoia based film uh, and I will go into more detail about some new sort of the neo-noirs, as they're called, in colour very soon, but that'll be later on. I would just like to recommend, I'm not paid to say this, but there's a book by the publisher Taschen. Uh, it's called Film Noir. It's edited by Paul Duncan and Jürgen Müller. And it's a brilliant book if you want to sort of look and get a starter's guide to film noir. Um, right. So I'm just going to wrap this up on the podcast now. And um the next episode, I'll be discussing science fiction, and I look forward to that because I do like a bit of sci-fi. Uh, I usually like TV sci-fi a lot of the time, as I'm a massive Doctor Who fan. But there is a lot of uh, I've got a few good picks for for the sci-fi episode. Then, shall we say? And I just really, really look forward to sharing that with you guys. And yeah. I will leave that at that, and uh, there might be a bit of a crossover as well, because sci-fi tends to be the most hybridised genre, so I'll see that when we get to it. Uh, but for now, uh, I've been David Ingram, this has been Take 97, a film podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, see you in the next episode. That's a wrap on Take 97. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.